Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, I'm Michael Hoke and this is the Yale University Press podcast. From the protests during Arab Spring to Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street, modern protests don't necessarily look like those from prior generations. These internet-driven social movements use powerful tools that didn't exist during, say, the civil rights movement. Twitter, Facebook, and a whole host of other technological advances provide new opportunities, but also many challenges to modern protests. Today, I'm joined by Zeynep Tufekce, Associate Professor of the, at the University of North Carolina, School of Information and Library Sciences, and a sociologist. She has traveled the world studying the social impacts of technology and is an expert on privacy and surveillance. She's given two popular TED Talks and has written a book, Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protests. Zainab, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me. So to start, uh, you've been on the ground uh, for some of these protests around the world. Um, what does a modern protest look like from that vantage point that people may not uh, see when they're watching news coverage? It's very joyous, usually. Uh, I mean, when you see sort of the cloud of tear gas and, you know, sort of some panicky moment, you might think it's just this very high um, tension event. And, of course, there's a lot of tension. Um, but, it, you know, protests are very joyous, and they're also very existentially jolting to the participants. They, they usually have... Um, these long-lasting uh, effects on people's lives uh, because mm -hmm. they feel so positive in many ways. Um, you know, there's a lot of joking, there's a lot of humor, there's a lot of camaraderie, and people are especially um, happy because, you know, when you enter a protest, it's a place where, you know, other things that often matter so much, like money and who you are, kind of matter less than the fact that, you know, here you are and in the same um, place holding some values dear and willing to stand up for them. So there's a great deal of camaraderie among the protesters in that way, too. So that's, um, I think it's not always as apparent when you just look at the TV images. Right. Doesn't necessarily make for <laughs> compelling news coverage if everybody's sort of... Uh, Joyous. I mean, it's. I don't mean to downplay. There are risks and there are issues, but it's just really sort of usually a more joyous experience than not. Mm -hmm. And um, what does? How does a modern protest uh, come together uh, using social media? Like, what what goes into sort of organizing a, a protest? Well, very often, and that's the part I talk a lot about in my book, a lot of times that these protests come to being very fast. Mm -hmm. right? They seem to come out of nowhere. And social media is a big part of how that happens, is that uh, they just sort of go viral very quickly. Uh, and they use hashtags and they use, um, you know, just sort of platforms like Facebook and Twitter to just spread very fast uh then that's kind of like the gizzy park protest they it happened um just basically in a couple of days it coalesced from very little uh prior organizing occupy and it started with an email and it just went really big and, and in fact it had like a global 
uh, protest that um, took maybe two, three weeks to mm-hmm. um, organize. It was one of the biggest protests ever globally. So that's kind of, they, they go from zero to 100 <laughs> uh, very quickly. And um, are governments aware of this as they're sort of ramping up since it's such a short period of time? Or does it does it usually catch the police and the governments uh, by surprise? Well, it the initial days usually catches them by surprise. Mm-hmm. But I think they've gotten used to the idea that they happen fairly fast, right? They, they, they've gotten used to the idea that they come from zero to 100. So I think governments are kind of on the more, um, they used to be really surprised and not understand (laughs) what hit them, to Mm -hmm. be frank. Mm -hmm. And I think increasingly they are more aware that um, this is just, this is sort of how these things happen is that they're organized through social media and they're organized through, um, these platforms very quickly. So I think every side is learning how this works. Mm-hmm. Sort of a learn as you go for everybody, I think. Yeah, for everybody, yeah. So does it usually start, obviously the protest starts with something to protest against, but then does it move to, say, a, a person or group of people that are like somewhat more connected on these platforms and then it spreads through there? Or, uh, or how does it how does it spread you know so quickly? Well, I mean, if it's the same way anything goes viral so quickly on mm-hmm. these platforms, right? You know, you just sort of um, if there's a existing grievance that they tap into, and there's something oh yeah, there has to be something there that people have to have some uh, amount of uh, unease mm-hmm. uh, or displeasure with something. And then you see this on, you know, social media and you can just click share and then it can just go viral from there Mm -hmm. because everybody else does the same thing. And so it just scales up very quickly. Right. And uh, the tools that are available are pretty much, it sounds like any social media platform, but I I suspect Facebook and and Twitter are probably the more more popular ones. Um, How are, this is sort of a two-part question, I guess, but how are these tools being used well um, by protesters and people organizing these, and how um, how are they maybe not being used well and could be used better? Well, I mean, one of the things um, uh, I mean, one of the things is that these going from zero to hundred uh, miles so quickly uh, is not always good for. Um, organizing and collective decision-making in the long term, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, if you go, if you're so quick to organize things and then you haven't built the kind of infrastructure you need to um, to kind of be able to do uh, the next um, uh, steps, mm-hmm. I think a lot of these movements kind of face this challenge is that they grow up so fast and so quickly that they don't um, know what is um, how to make decisions collectively, mm-hmm. how to challenge uh, uh, the next step. So they kind of get stuck. And this is something that I uh, cover a lot in my book is that using you know Facebook 
to spread the message and go viral might make a lot of sense because going viral makes a lot of sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, but how do you make decisions? Like going <laughs> viral and making decisions is not really, um, they're not compatible. And I think a lot of these um, movements struggle with what comes next after you've gone to this um, process. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen it even on the most basic level, uh, you'll see uh, calls go out on Twitter for, for basic supplies sometimes, is, you know, the sort of supply lines aren't established to, to, um, to get food and water and, and things like that into some of these, especially when there's sort of a community built up as a camp ar around the protest. Um, you also talk about um, this sort of decentralizing of um of information and leadership and what are some of the what are some of the good points of having a sort of decentralized leadership and um you've you've alluded to it a bit but but what are some of the the problems faced there i mean obviously uh it's very um participatory right it's very participatory uh, the people have more buy-in. Uh, there is um, a lot more. Um, man, there's just a lot more participation, which so that's mm -hmm. a good thing. Also, it's harder for a state to um, attack it uh, mm -hmm. because you know who knows what the um, leader is. It's kind of hard because a lot of movements fear uh, that the leadership will be. Um, co-opted or corrupted or even killed or attacked mm -hmm. and all those things. So um, I think that, that so there, there's genuine upsides to it. The problem is, once again, comes down to decision-making. How do you make decisions in a participatory way? Mm -hmm. uh, this is not an easy thing because especially if um, you're doing it at scale, mm -hmm. and especially if you're doing it on platforms like Facebook, which are optimized not just for decision not for decision making but for keeping you on the site so you're on a site that's more advertising driven and it is a, a site the goals of which are to keep you on the site as long as possible mm -hmm. and there you are trying to use the site to come to an agreement on something with people well the site isn't designed to for you to come to any agreement on anything it's designed <laughs> to um, keep you there. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a real mismatch between using platforms good for attention and virality, which they are good for that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a mismatch between using platforms that are good for those things, uh, for things they're not good at, which is just collective decision making. And I think a lot of movements kind of struggle with that. And is the payoff um, of having maybe a wider spread? participation does that balance with sort of the loss of you know something like what the civil rights movement had which was very clear uh symbolic figureheads as as leaders of of the movement and um, and directing the movements in some way is, is this a pair sure. i mean there are obviously uh, real upsides to having um clear leadership structures but there are downsides too right so as we discussed it's kind of this double-edged sword mm -hmm. um and also it means that i mean on the one hand it is participatory right so you got more buy-in from lots of people 
Uh, on the other hand, who represents the movement, right? Mm -hmm. It's usually unclear who, if anyone, represents the movement. And if nobody represents the movement, uh, can anything anybody claims in the name of the movement be part of the movement? What if somebody does something that's not great? Uh, um, how does the movement draw a line mm -hmm. and say, um, I don't want to do this part and this is who we are? So what happens is, in effect, the movement kind of stops being able to control its identity, its narrative, its message. Mm -hmm. Because if anything goes, uh, even three people who do something that is really not representative of the movement at all, let's say, they could be seen as representative of the movement because anybody could be seen as representative of the movement since nobody really is. And that's right. another challenge, I think, for a lot of these movements. Right. And I mean, you know, I, I, f I think the opposition to these movements is able to sort of cherry pick any little negative sure, thing that happens. Sure, because if you don't have a mechanism to uh, guard who you are and what you stand for, uh, and if anybody can do anything, the opposition to these movements or a government will come and say, all right, you know, here's a person that's doing something that's really unpopular, and that's really, let's say, rare in the movement. Nobody really does it. But if you don't have a mechanism to delineate that, it's not going to stop them from claiming that's who you are, and you're kind of going to be stuck uh, fighting that. And that happens to lots of movements. They end up fighting these battles about who they are without mechanisms to define who they are. So have you come across any examples of uh, maybe a movement that's been able to push back against that well? Recently? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think recent movements have all, especially those on the left, have struggled with it. Mm -hmm. But if you want a success story in the U.S., it's ironically the Tea Party movement mm -hmm. is one of the more effective movements in the United States. Um, it was able to do a lot with uh, start as a protest movement, got cash infusion from rich backers, mm -hmm. uh, had a lot of strategic sense on what it was going to do. So, if, you know, that's sort of an example of a movement that was able to use both digital technology and, you know, political support uh, and cash support from um, donors and just kind of end up at a place that resulted in them being quite powerful. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the the evolution of that almost is that eventually uh, some sort of leadership or figurehead will evolve or emerge. Um, you know, in the case of the Tea Party, obviously there are people in Congress who would consider themselves backed by the Tea Party and, and that became sort of a, uh, a movement that, that ended up getting roots in government. Right. So, yeah, it was this very mixed approach and it worked for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it kind of shows you that, you know, movements have a range of actions that they do and don't do. And um, this is um, that so there's a lot of uh, flexibility in how things play out. Another um, idea that's been definitely in the forefront of the news lately is this idea of uh, fake news or or, you know, maybe living in your own sort of uh, bubble. Um, I, I assume that's a danger for people in network protests as well. So even or even in online activism uh, in general. So how does uh, someone who gets most of their news online 
how, how can you be vigilant about the quality of information you're receiving, especially when you're disseminating for the, the, these networked protests? Right. I mean, it's a huge problem because people are prone to believing things that confirm their biases. It's just human nature. And these platforms are very good at feeding us a lot of that. So that is absolutely a problem um, in dealing with it. Now, on the one hand, as a person, there are ways to try to deal with it um, by you know, being careful, checking sources and all of that. But more importantly, there has to be um, ways to deal with this so for platforms to sort of find ways to uh, disincentivize and maybe uh, not make so profitable to spread misinformation. Because right now, if you spread misinformation, um, it's pretty profitable mm -hmm. and you can just kind of make money from the ads that it generates, so which creates really perverse incentives, I think. Mm -hmm. You also talk about, um, in fact, uh, you you uh, talk about how the uh, YouTube's news director expects that within an hour of any major event, there will be footage available on YouTube. I think that could be said uh, about any platform online. Um, what does the that immediacy of coverage do to society? Well, I mean, it does a lot of things, and you see this in the... Uh terrorism um, coverage is that, you know, we're constantly sort of horrified by these things that are horrible. I mean, there's no question they're horrible, but even if they're far away, you feel them viscerally and you feel like you might feel a huge threat um, that is, um, that feels very visceral and real. And it is horrible, but mm -hmm. in fact, uh, it is maybe... Um, something that is not a big threat to you because it's mm -hmm. a rare event, as mm -hmm. horrible as it might be. So I think this is kind of um, how things are, is that uh, we feel a lot of things as if they're close and our world is kind of changed uh, by uh, how these things are um, just this experienced through social media. Yeah, I mean, uh, th this came up recently, and you even, I think, tweeted about it um, with the the uh, terrorist attack in Manchester, uh, and uh, the idea that <laughs> this sort of spreading of images that the that the media tends to do these horrific images of people running away and people bloody that almost helps uh, promote terrorism in a way because yeah, that I is mean, the goal. A, these acts are done to generate. Uh, disproportional and scary forms of um, coverage uh, so that we are freaked out by it, right? That's the whole point of uh, doing things like this. And it really works because then we are horrified and uh, and it goes on like that. So I, I think there's a feedback mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I'm, this changes the dynamic a bit because it used to be that the media, um, television, newspaper, whatever it might be, were the gatekeepers of this information, and they sort of uh, determined what should be disseminated. But now, in this fast-paced world, they're not only uh, trying to keep up with the, the rapid pace, but we also, as social media users, become gatekeepers ourselves. What is our, you know, what is an individual's responsibility um, when it comes to to the spread of this information? I mean, obviously, people should tr do their best to try to 
uh, vet information, and I think people should also uh, support um, their local newspapers, but not blindly, or their you know mag- the, the sort of national newspapers. But once again, uh, not blindly uh, by like, support, and also ask them to be better. So I think there's a lot a person can do, but the problem is uh, the the environment is really conducive, incentivized to spreading misinformation. So even if you do your whole part, it's kind of hard to just, you know, uh, keep the public sphere straight. So I think I'm, I'm all for people doing what they can, mm-hmm. but I think the real algorithms uh, have to come from I'm um, the real sort of uh, systemic solutions have to involve both uh, structuring uh, mass media mm-hmm. with um, better incentives and also social media platforms to kind of step up and stop making um, digital um, environments profitable from misinformation. You know, it should be um, right now it's profitable to do that and hopefully mm-hmm. it would be Less so. Mm-hmm. So switching gears a little bit to maybe the government side of things, you also talk about how uh, how governments are, are starting to use these uh, these new digital tools. In what ways are they are they using them? What ways should we be aware of? Well, governments have learned to use these tools to monitor protests mm-hmm. and to surveil people and uh, to try to modify it right so then so so that to change our opinions to sort of um in, for example in one very particular um case uh in there's research that shows that in china um the the government doesn't censor uh the the news as much as um it um sort of watches what people are saying uh, mm. it does censor some things but it's not criticisms of government it's more like it censors um calls to collective action so if you're just mm. criticizing the government mm-hmm. uh it's allowed and most likely what's happening is they're using such calls almost like a petition to the emperor from ancient times mm-hmm. right they're using it to try to understand where the go- where the people are at because if you're a um, if you're an authoritarian government, the biggest threat to you is the blind spot of not knowing where people are thinking or fearing mm-hmm. and um, sort of getting hit with that blind spot. So I think for um, governments like authoritarian governments, there's increasingly new tools to understand what your population is doing and surveil them and if you're kind of lucky for you, I guess, um, if you're such a government, is to try to control them through uh, this kind of surveillance. And I think it's getting a lot more common uh, to use social media like that. And also Mm -hmm. governments can um, try to challenge social media. uh, They can try to challenge social movements by challenging their credibility in the past you try to censor things and it's harder and harder to censor things increasingly instead of censoring things you can just say 
it's fake. It's a lie. It's <laughs> uh, false. It's um, so you can challenge credibility, mm-hmm. which I think is a more effective form of censorship because if people don't know what to believe. Mm-hmm. They can just be paralyzed. And if you are, um, like if you're a social movement, you're trying to convince people to do something. Whereas if you're a government, all you're trying to do is just confusing them would be enough. Um, so I think uh, confusing people online has turned into um, a very effective form of censorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, you see it with even <laughs> just regular media now, uh, this idea of sort of trying to undermine the credibility of certain news organizations and, and certain uh, people who are reporting things online. Um, and that definitely seems to have an effect. Right, absolutely, yeah. And so, I mean, going back to this idea about uh, privacy, for those who may be worried about privacy on social media, what can you, what can be done to combat this? Well, I mean, I think we have to move into a new world where we recognize that this is an important part of the political sphere and it's a political question. So there has to be multiple things. There has to be new ways of funding local news, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be better ways of getting national news out. You know, usually national news can find funding through subscribers, but this is not always true for uh, local news, which doesn't have the scale because online ads are not only worth not much. Most of them, the money in ads goes to Facebook and Google, so that doesn't help your mm-hmm. news production. Uh, Facebook and Google and such platforms have to uh, step up to their responsibility. They usually want to act like like nothing is their um, fault or problem, uh, but they have very particular incentive structures that help create the problem of fake news and misinformation online. So they have to step up on their side and um, work on that. And the ordinary people have to uh, develop better ways of sort of distinguishing that kind of, you know, fake and misinformation uh, and have better immune systems, so to speak. And schools, uh, and I'm, now I'm speaking as my college professor hat, <laughs> and schools have to integrate this into their curriculum and teach uh, assessing credibility Uh, as a key part of what we do when we teach our students. And so there's a lot to be done. It's a new world, and we're just kind of learning how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the book is Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protests. Uh, Zainab, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.